These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. In 2000 BCE, the Amorite nomads from the deserts of the Middle East arrived in civilized lands in unprecedented numbers. We've already seen how these disruptions resulted in the fall of the Ur dynasty and the turbulent Isin Larsa period in Sumer. And last episode, we looked at the trading empire that was established in Assyria. This week, we shift our focus to the region perhaps hardest hit by the nomads, the region of Upper Mesopotamia along the Euphrates and into the modern-day nation of Syria. Now, the geographical designation of Syria didn't exist yet and won't until Greek times, but I've yet to find a good, consistent place name for this region. The Mesopotamians themselves would have just called it Amaru, but that word really means everything west of their main civilization and includes far more than just the parts of Syria that would play host to the kingdoms that will arise in today's episode. And so I'm just going to keep calling it Syria, referring in a broad sense sense to the land currently occupied by the modern-day Syrian Arab Republic. In any case, the big player in Syria in 2000 BCE was the city of Mari, the easternmost kingdom of the region, situated on the Euphrates River. We've seen Mari a few times now, but to quickly recap and fill in some details, long, long ago, it ruled half of Syria along with its rival, the city of Ebla. Mari beat Ebla, then the Akkadian Empire beat Mari. When the Gutians destroyed the Akkadian Empire, Mari fell into the hands of a so-called dynasty of generals, about whom very little is known. Ebla continued to exist as a rump state, slowly fading away, while Mari seems to have had some amount of regional power, but it's unclear how much. Likely, it waxed and waned over the centuries. Clearly, though, Mari is the dominant city in the region among the many city-states of Syria until the Amorites show up. With the coming of the year 2000, which we use as a point of reference only since these developments took place over decades on either side of that year, the Amorite nomads arrive in force, and in Syria we can clearly see both faces of their culture. On one hand, the need to fight off the endless nomad raids throws Mari into a dark age under its dynasty of generals, though arguably it had been fighting these nomads for a hundred years or even more before this. Records are very sparse for this period. At the same time, down in South Syria, at the edge of the hard desert, the Amorites have founded a number of cities, the most significant of which is the city of Katna. The city itself may have been founded even earlier, though only as a small town. The first mention of Katna that we get in the semi-historical record is actually from an Egyptian literary tale called the Story of Sinue. If you'd like to hear about the story itself, Dominic Perry covers the tale in episode 34 of his absolutely fantastic History of Egypt podcast, though note that Katna only gets a passing mention in that story. You should listen to the History of Egypt podcast because it's a fantastic tale and a fantastic narrator. Seriously, he puts this podcast to shame. We get no mention of the small kingdom for another 150 years after this. However, by the time it does show up, it rules over a decently sized territory in South Syria. Most likely, 
Cotness spends the 1900s acting as an overland trade intermediary from the cities of Phoenicia, most prominently the ancient city of Byblos and the Euphrates River, where international trade would flow down to the trade hubs of Sumer and even out to Oman and India. The merchants of Katna may only be an intermediate step in this, trading from Byblos to Mari, or this trade could look more like the long-distance expeditions undertaken by the Assyrian merchants at around this time, with Katna just a stopover that may also be charging tariffs on goods passing through. Or, of course, a bit of both may be the case, but whatever the specifics, Amorite merchants start to bring this small Amorite city to wealth and regional prominence, and over time it comes to dominate the other desert towns and form a territorial kingdom. City-states being absorbed by territorial kingdoms is the theme of this period. In Sumer and Akkad, the emergence of multiple such kingdoms, each inspired by Akkad's golden age, leads to constant warfare. And in Syria, things are no different, though it is all a bit poorer, less dense, and more spread out. In the decades following 2000, there are probably a number of independent city-states and probably a number of conquering Amorites, but all we have is a vague shape of Mari and Katna at this point. In Mari itself, the list of the dynasty of generals shifts from men with Akkadian names to men with Amorite names. But whether this is because of a coup or because of a general shift in the culture, which would always have been majority Semitic and closer to that of the Amorites in any case, is uncertain. Ebla at some point falls under Mari's dominance, and at times we get a sense that Mari controls most of Syria in this period, with the very south under the growing power of Katna. But while it may look like this on a map, the situation is likely far, far less unified than this image would lead us to believe. High culture in Mari borrows heavily from Sumer and Akkad, following the religion, art, architecture, and writing of their southeastern neighbors. The society, however, was much more Western Semitic in nature, focused heavily on tribal identity, and never fully divorced from the nomadic pastoralists that they had come from. The majority of the people of Mari, and by extension most of the Syrian cities, were culturally not all that different from most depictions of the biblical patriarchs, and for good reason. This is, by many accounts, the age of the patriarchs, but we will be saving that discussion for the end of the show, since it's a bit of a tangent and has no direct role on this historical narrative. But there is one more culture in the region that is easy to overlook, despite its presence being felt throughout North Syria and even in Assyria as well. These are the Hurrians, the people of the Anatolian and Armenian highlands of the north. Like the Amorites, their culture encompasses both extremes of nomadism and agricultural urbanism, and groups seem to have gone from one to the other without too much difficulty over multiple generations as conditions change to make farming more or less worthwhile in the region. The nomadic elements of their society were as generally invisible as all such transient people, but we see Hurrian-dominated city-states from as far as Urartu, north of the Phoenician cities on the Mediterranean coast, all the way to Arapa in East Assyria, the site of modern-day Kirkuk, with the oldest known city-state being Urkesh, situated north of Mari, 
about halfway between Urartu and Arapaha, on the modern Turkish-Syrian border. This city of Urkesh is one of our best sources for mainstream Hurrian civilization in the early period, having been constructed sometime around or before the Akkadian Empire had made that region their northern border, and surviving for nearly a thousand years, though not always under Hurrian rule. It was once believed that the Hurrians and their neighbors, the Hattites in central Anatolia, were a wave of migratory invaders, or even part of the Indo-European wave of migrations, but increasingly it's believed that they were simply the natives who had occupied that land since at least the Stone Age. Like Katna to the south, Urkesh was likely a trade hub and religious site, a settled stopover for a mostly mobile people. In Urkesh's case, the trade was primarily in copper, which it sold for centuries to Sumerian and Akkadian merchants. They didn't just mine it either. All the Hittites were particularly renowned for metalworking, and there are some who theorize with some plausibility that the Sumerians didn't actually invent copper or bronze smithing, instead having borrowed the knowledge from the northern peoples of the Anatolian mountains, where both metals are much more easily accessible. Much of Hurrian culture is obscure, or deeply intermixed with their Hattian neighbors and later Hittite rulers. And even though the Hattians and Hurrians were the natives with which the Assyrian merchant colonies are dealing so heavily with, they barely seem to register in the written record as anything more than economic actors, lists of goods sold and debts owed. To make matters worse, they seem to have penetrated fairly deeply into Syria and Assyria on an individual or tribal basis and intermixed with the populations there, either passing through as transients or assimilating so completely into the host cultures as to leave no distinct archaeological trace of their passing. In all this blackness, the Hurrians seem to be pretty much just a patch on the map, somewhat to the north of our main area of interest. We know they were metal workers, we know a fair bit about their religion since it will later be adopted by the Hittites to a large degree, and their skillful pottery will show up all throughout the Middle East, from Egypt to Sumer. We could say very little definitely about what they were doing in this period, but what little we do have certainly hints at very substantial engagement with the wider world. While Urkesh has no formal king's list like most Mesopotamian states, or at least none that's been recovered, we know the names of a number of kings dating back from when Sargon swept through the area. From 2300, or probably before, the kings were called Enden, a Hurrian word that is somewhat religious in nature and possibly related to the Sumerian NC, or priest-king. With the collapse of the Ur dynasty, which never really reached this far in a formal sense, but clearly the political system had been making an impact past the formal borders, the subsequent kings begin to refer to themselves using the Sumerian term for a secular king, Lugal. The reason for this is unclear, but clearly Sumerian culture had permeated fairly strongly into this very distant culture, either the influence of Sumerian as a literary language growing in prestige in the Hurrian court, or perhaps they were tied into the political system strongly enough that with the collapse of Ur, the Hurrians believed that they too could make a play in the power vacuum for becoming a Mesopotamian hegemon in Sumero-Akkadian fashion. 
We can't be sure of the reasons, but if it was the latter, these imperial ambitions do not appear to have caused the city to expand to any great degree. At the same time, the city of Arapa in Assyria, modern Kirkuk in modern Kurdistan, is founded, becoming the easternmost extent of Hurrian urbanism, showing that they are continuing to grow in prosperity and social complexity. Arapa is an independent city not related to Urkesh except through cultural ties, but the fact that from this city we see Akkadian script begin to flow through the rest of the Hurrian world certainly indicates intracultural links between politically independent cities. Which makes sense. We've seen the same sort of technological and cultural spread in the independent cities of Sumer, Syria, and later in classical Greece and Phoenicia, so why not here too? And with these scraps of news from around the year 2000, Upper Mesopotamia goes more or less dark for over a century. We can't even assign king names to most of these kingdoms for most of the years, let alone any details for what's going on under said kings. The only developments we have, and very sketchy ones at that, come from Asher, where we at least have some king names, Puzzer Asher being the first credited by later kings as the first in a post-Ur period. It would have been he who oversaw the defense of the city during the Amorite attacks of the period, and he may have built or re-fortified the town walls. Puzzer Asher was followed by Shalim Ahum, whose name means keep the brothers safe, likely indicating that he was expected by his father to continue the defense of the city against the Amorites. Things seem to have calmed down by this point, however, and this is the time when the early merchant companies begin to establish the Karam trading colonies discussed last episode. Ilushuma is another king we can't assign dates to, but he seems to have expanded on the merchant-friendly policies of his father. Under him, we may have the first evidence of a trade war, in which he attempted to bring southern merchants to Assyria, with promises of favorable tax treatment. It's unclear to what extent this was successful, though he listed this and fostering a flourishing trade in high-quality copper among his kingly accomplishments. Quite a difference from the religious and military focuses of the other kings of the day. These three kings ruled for a combined 50 years, and following them we get the first king with reliable dates attached, Erishim I, ruling from about 1974 to 1935 BCE. Interestingly, he never titles himself as king, even though he shows up on the later king's list. In his own lifetime, he has inscriptions reading, Asher is king, Erishim is vice-regent, and Erishim the steward, demonstrating on one hand the great piety that the city showed to its eponymous god, as well as the fact that at this early stage, Asher is actually still in transition from an oligarchy with some sort of city assembly, likely a holdover from when the town was just a meeting place for tribal groups, into the proper monarchy that will characterize its later politics. This congressional system seems to have been replicated in miniature in the colonies, and the executive branch both in Asher and the Karams was a prestigious social position, but probably not the driver of legislative action. 
As to his actual policy, he seems to be nothing more than a continuation of the merchant-focused efforts of the previous kings and congresses as the Karams continue to develop and the merchant companies grow wealthier. He's followed by Ilkunum, for whom nothing is known but name and dates, and then followed by a fellow named Sargon I. By now we're around the year 1900, and the Akkadians of Assyria really seem to be quite proud of their ancient heritage, looking back on the Akkadian Empire as a lost golden age, with some of the myths covered in Sargon the Great's three episodes dating to this time. This Sargon would have been a bit of a disappointment to his namesake, however, ruling fairly peacefully and refortifying the city walls. Puzzer Asher II followed this Assyrian Sargon and ruled in obscurity to be succeeded by Naram-Sin of Assyria. This Naram-Sin was named after the much more famous Naram-Sin of Akkad, and his reign is a confusing mess with very few details. There are also records at the exact same time of a Naram-Sin ruling in the kingdom south of Assyria, Eshnunna. This is actually where we cut off our story of Eshnunna as well to give me time to read more deeply into the confusion, but it turns out there's only so deep you can go on this matter. We have three possibilities for the political history of Assyria and Eshnunna after 1830. Either Naram-Sin of Assyria went out and conquered Eshnunna, Naram-Sin of Eshnunna went out and conquered Asher, or they were two separate Naram-Sins at the exact same time, both of whom conquered a bit and brought their two states into very close diplomatic union. All three interpretations are difficult to support because both Asher and Eshnunna have grown quite powerful, Asher with its wealth and Eshnunna with its armies. One would think that a conquest in either direction would have left a greater impression in both kingdoms. On the other hand, the coincidence of two kings with the same name and same ruling dates in neighboring kingdoms, one of whom is renowned for being a conqueror from a line of conquerors, seems to be difficult for many historians to accept. Whatever the case with our confusion of Naram's sins, the most important detail is that one of them may have conquered the city of Ekalatum or Turka, or possibly both, where an otherwise minor Amorite king named Shamshi Adad was ruling. Shamshi Adad flees after this defeat to Babylon, and we haven't heard the last of him yet. Meanwhile, back in Asher, Naram-Sin dies after about 15 years and leaves the throne to the last member of the old Assyrian dynasty, the short-lived Erisham II. But all this build-up will pay off with his death after an unimpressive reign. So before the fireworks start, we should head west one more time. We can zoom through those same 200 years in all of Syria with even less to say about it. We have some fragments of some names of kings of Mari without dates or accomplishments to attach to any of them. They're called the Dynasty of Generals, so we assume they were fighting on and off throughout the period against Hurrian cities and nomads and Amorite cities and nomads. The Syrian archaeological record of these 200 years is full of what are called burn lairs in nearly every city. 
indicating that cities were captured and recaptured with as much frequency in Syria as in the hardest battlegrounds of Sumer, though who was doing the fighting and why burned along with the cities. Twenty previously substantial cities in Syria were destroyed completely in this fighting, and most of the rest were greatly reduced, many by as much as 75%. Mari seems to have lost much of their influence in all this, because when we finally get to their recorded history again, we see them fighting against the very well-fortified city of Turka, which was fairly close to Mari itself, and in previous times had been one of the fortress cities that defended the core of Mari's kingdom. This fighting is occurring under the king Yagid Lim, an Amorite who overthrew the old dynasty of generals that had ruled for possibly 300 years or more, and may represent a nadir of Mariot power. We know little else about the founder of the Lim dynasty. Even his accession could be anywhere from 1830 to 1820, but his successors are going to quickly bring Mari back to the kingdom we're used to seeing, dominating the upper Euphrates and east Syrian countryside. Yagid Lim may have expanded Mari's territory a bit, probably enough to establish the city under his new dynasty, and make enemies of the city of Ekalatum, which Eshnuna is also attacking and will soon conquer. Yagid Lim's son, Yahdun Lim, is where the story of Mari really picks back up. And from him, we get the story of Syria as a whole. Turka and Ekalatum, allies ruled by a father and son pair of kings, fall in rapid succession. Or perhaps just one, or perhaps just the other. It's very confusing, we'll discuss it more next episode. But in any case, Yahdun Lim goes from this conquest to a swift consolidation of the Marriott heartland, and then looks west for conquest. But at the same time that Mari has been consolidating, the formerly independent towns and empty spaces have been filled. In the south, Katna has used its trading position and nomadic armies to build a respectable little kingdom. And in the north, the new kingdom of Yamhat has sprung into existence as a fully formed kingdom based out of the very ancient city of Aleppo and dominating the entire northwest. The kingdom of Yamhad is a project of a confederation of Hurrian and Amorite tribes that intermingled in north Syria and moved into the already ancient city of Aleppo in much the same way that the confederation under Sumu Abum moved into Babylon around the same time. Yamhad is probably the name of the dominant tribe, and it is also referred to as the kingdom of Halab, Hadad, or Alep, all of which are alternate names for the modern city of Aleppo. I wish we had more to say about how a multi-ethnic tribal state functioned in 1800 BCE, but we know of Yamhad almost exclusively from their dealings with their neighbors in Mari and Assyria, and can say basically nothing about what this kingdom looked like beyond their territorial extent and the fact that it traded with Anatolia, the Aegean, and Assyria. The first attested king, whom some think is the first formal king of Aleppo rather than just a tribal leader, is Sumu Epu, and with him and his North Syrian kingdom, we've finally brought the entire Upper Mesopotamia to the year 1810. 
The year 1810 is significant in the north because this is the year of the great northern conqueror Shamsi Adad. Like Rimsin in the south, the exiled king of Turka or Ekalatum is going to shape the coming narrative in a way few other men manage to. We're going to see lots and lots of conflict in a good amount of detail and continue to deepen our understanding of the cultures and kingdoms that Hammurabi's Babylon will be contending with. However, we're going to save Shamsi Adad and the Upper Mesopotamian Empire for next week. The rest of today's episode will consist of the biblical tangent promised at the start of the episode. For those deeply uninterested in biblical topics, you can end the episode now. It will have no bearing on the future narrative. But for everyone else, it may interest you to note that we are now properly in the age of patriarchs, or as near as anyone can reckon. The subject of biblical archaeology is fraught with peril, especially before King David and the Kingdom of Israel begin to make a mark on the politics of his day. There is quite a lot of scholarship based off of work done by very intelligent and very well-meaning people who were working 200 years ago, well before much of modern archaeology changed our understanding of pre-biblical history. As well, there's quite a lot of so-called scholarship from people who are working with much better knowledge of the Bible as a text than of ancient history, as it's understood by most historians. And to add to it all, there are the mystics and crazies who are more or less just making stuff up, either to make money from the gullible or to prove some weird aspect of their idiosyncratic ideology. But many of the early chapters of Genesis interact heavily with Mesopotamian myth, which excites no small amount of commentary, and so it's worth looking into. I feel like personally looking at aspects of Genesis from a Mesopotamian perspective, rather than trying to look at Mesopotamia from a biblical perspective, has already shown us some very interesting things about the culture of the early Hebrew people. Already on this podcast, passing mention has been made to the Tower of Babel and Flood myths both predating Jewish religion, and that the myths of Adam in Eden and Cain and Abel are fascinating inversions of the Sumerian tales of Adipa and the debate between grain and sheep, which illustrate the cultural differences between agrarian and pastoral societies. But outside of creationist circles, most people see these first ten chapters of Genesis as myths with moral and educational content rather than strictly historical. However, with the genealogies and the appearance of Abraham, the first patriarch, we start getting into stories that sound much more like they are set in a real historical time and place. As far as anyone can figure, that historical time and place is more or less now in our narrative. Our tale starts in Genesis 1131, where it breaks from a long genealogy to inform us that Abraham left from a city called Ur of the Chaldees and went over to Canaan. Not for any particular reason, it seems, just that Abraham's father has passed away, and when he became head of the tribe, he decided to shift pasture land, a common enough move for pastoral nomads. And yes, at this point, he is still named Abram, but I'm going to keep calling him Abraham because I think that's more familiar to most people. 
Now, where exactly Ur of the Chaldees is, is a bit of a mystery, and already lets us know that we're reading a historical account from at least a thousand years after the events being written about, since the Chaldeans won't show up until the Iron Age. There are a number of similar anachronisms, such as mentions of Hittites and domesticated camels, which reinforces the idea that this story may not have been transmitted completely perfectly over the generations. But we have two main candidates. The first is the city of Ur down in Sumer, and indeed there are some Bible scholars who would put the date of Abraham's departure from Ur as early as 2300 BCE, shortly before Sargon of Akkad begins his conquests, with others putting the date at pretty much any point you can think of between that early extreme and sometime around 1500. Modern scholarship, however, is starting to suspect that the city that the Hebrews called Ur of the Chaldees was the Hurrian city of Urkesh, discussed earlier in the episode, and that date somewhere a bit before 1800. Genesis 11, 12, and 13 mostly just follow Abraham and his family as they travel around first to Canaan, the Hebrew word for Phoenicia in modern-day Lebanon and Israel, then to Egypt, then back to Canaan. A fine story, but nothing of particular of historical note or of Mesopotamian relevance. But then we get to this fascinating tale from Genesis 14, which purports to be a description of the Battle of the Vale of Siddim. So much of this is obscure. First of all, because the Hebrews give different names to nearly every country from the names we know of in archaeology, so task one is to match up all the players between the languages. 14.1 tells us that the battle takes place in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Cherdolamer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations. Shinar is easy, that's the Hebrew name for Sumer, though it can be taken to refer to Sumer and Akkad or the later region of Babylonia as well. Elam, too, is the only name that we still use today for the people of southern Iran who have been showing up on and off in our story. King of Nations is taken by the rabbis to maybe be a scribal error, and they mean King of the Gutians, the nomads of the Iranian mountains. And the land of Elisar is uncertain, but possibly Assyria or Mari. The point being that on one side of this battle are all the major kings of the east. On the other side of this battle are five Canaanite cities, which we would call five Phoenician city-states. Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Zoar. Sodom and Gomorrah are famous for their destruction in a later story, and the other three cities aren't really famous at all. Phoenician history is obscure enough in this period that there may be no way to identify these cities with more common names, but that isn't too important. What's important is the following narrative, taken from the King James Version, Genesis 14.3-12. All these were joined together in the Vale of Siddim, which is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Cherdolomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year came Cherdolomer, and the kings that were with him, and smote the Rephaims in Astaroth Karnaim, and the Zuzims in Ham, and the Emins in Shaveh Kirithaim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir, 
and unto El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And they returned and came to Emnishpat, which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amakalites and also the Amorites, that dwelt in Hazazon Tamar. And there went out the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, the same is Zoar. And they joined battle with them in the vale of Sidon with Cherdolomer, the king of Elam, and with Tidal, king of nations, and with Amraphel, the king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings with five. And the vale of Siddim was full of slime pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there. And they that remained fled to the mountains. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their victuals, and went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. Now, this is a lot of difficult-to-pronounce places and people who don't really matter. The important part is that the coalition, led by the Elamites, marches into Phoenicia twice in 15 years, and the second time kicks butt all up and down Phoenicia until finally killing the kings of two city-states at the Battle of Siddim. Abraham's nephew was fighting on the side of Sodom, or at least affiliated with Sodom, and gets taken captive during the sack of the city. But already, I think those of you who have been following this show for a while are starting to think something's wrong here. Not only is it odd to hear of Sumer, Elam, the Gutians, and some northern power all allying together, this is the first time we've ever heard anyone suggest that any military force from Mesopotamia has ever entered into Phoenicia, particularly for Elam, the easternmost power in the Middle East, to reach all the way to taking a vassal on the opposite side of the world seems quite peculiar. It sounds wrong because it is wrong. We will look at a number of curious alliances and epic military campaigns in the episodes to come, but the narrative of Phoenicia is completely separate from the narrative of Mesopotamia in this period. You'll occasionally have heroic kings making a raid into northern Lebanon, and there is a steady volume of peaceful trade throughout the region, but not until the Hittites fight the Egyptian New Kingdom will the two regions interact to any real degree, politically or militarily. Of course, when the rabbis wrote this story in the Middle Iron Age, when Persia and Babylon were true empires that spanned the entire Near East, it would have seemed much more plausible. But we're in the Middle Bronze Age now, and the very first historical narrative of the Bible, one that got me all excited for touching on the land of Shinar, or Sumer, turns out to be a complete fiction. Abraham will go on in the story to take 318 warriors on a nighttime raid of the Elamite army as they return with their plunder and slaves, and they'll recover Lot and some of the stolen treasure, and the rest of the Bible narrative will stay in Egypt and Phoenicia until the establishment of the Kingdom of Israel in about 800 years. The character of Abraham will continue to have anachronisms like camels and Hittites to remind us that modern archaeology doesn't really support anything that happened in Torah. 
That doesn't mean you can't find profound moral value in Torah or the Bible, like when Abraham shows his ultimate virtue by obeying God's command to murder his own son. But as someone who's been spending quite a while now seriously researching our best understanding of Mesopotamian history, I feel obligated to point out, like I did in the episode about ancient aliens, when popular versions of that history are grossly inaccurate and full of amateurish mistakes. And so, we will close out the episode with this. Join me next time as we look at the campaigns of Shamshi Adad and the exciting disruptions of the Upper Mesopotamian Empire. Thank you for listening.